chances are when you listen to this podcast, you'll be distracted at least once. If it's a really important point to you where you're really intently listening, you'll find that quite the disruption. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian, with a podcast that explores the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically, or as we used to refer to it back in the old days, theological reflection. Today on the podcast, I'm glad to have Alan Noble. Alan is an English professor at Oklahoma Baptist University. I'm reading on the back and I'm going, oh, at Oklahoma Baptist University, how come I don't know this guy? <laughs> uh, well, I thought, well, I've got to grab that book. And then when I saw that you were channeling Charles Taylor, and um, I'm still trying to get through Charles Taylor, um, I thought, well, that's, uh, that's someone I need to talk to. And he has recently uh, had a book published titled Disruptive Witness, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age been looking forward to having this conversation for any number of reasons, and um, I think you'll find it fascinating. There are a number of phrases that um, we explore that are picked up from Alan's reading of Charles Taylor's um, A Secular Age and, and one other work that he mentions in our conversation. Are you in A Secular Age? <laughs> uh, I have... Uh, it's one of those things that I, I'm an ADD reader, so I got in, oh, I don't know, maybe 100 pages, and I saw someone else it took about two years to get through, so I don't feel so bad. If uh, you happen to be a pastor and you uh, have cut your teeth on worldview debates or you've been uh, a Vantillian and involved in presuppositional apologetics, uh, Alan has some suggestions, he has some insights that there might be a more disruptive way to talk about uh, the transcendent, and that would give us an opportunity to talk about God uh, in a real sort of way. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with uh, Alan Noble. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. We're that podcast that explores the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically, or what we said the old seminary days is theological reflection. Uh, today on the podcast, I'm I'm really excited to have. Uh, well, he's on his Twitter handles, the Alan Noble. So that definite article lets you know we've got the real McCoy on the uh, other line. And so, uh, Alan, I'm I'm glad to have you on today to talk about your new book, Disruptive Witness: Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age. I'm excited to be here, Todd. Thank you for having me. Yeah, just for uh, the audience. Um, in case you've not ever heard of the definite Alan Noble, I want you to know that he is a professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University. That's my alma mater. So I was pretty excited to find that he was uh, over there in, in Shawnee. Um, he, uh, he writes well and writes widely. And maybe you've read him on Christianity in, in a Christianity Day piece or maybe Relevant Magazine and probably other places along the way. But uh, it's a new discovery for me, and I'm really excited to uh, talk about Alan's book. So, folks, I hope, uh, quick plug, uh, go out and buy it. So don't don't take any of my questions personal. Uh, any conversation we have, it's very, very much worth uh, getting your hands on. So, um, Alan, why, why Charles Taylor? Um, 
you you help us understand Charles Taylor in a way that it really takes some work if you're actually going to sit down with a secular age. And so what was the inspiration for you to look at a figure like Charles Taylor? So um, I was basically required to, as I was doing my PhD program at Baylor. So that's it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a, since it's an 800 page tome, um, um, you know, sometimes you need to be required to do good things. Uh, things that are Correct. good for you. Sometimes you need somebody to say, you just, you need to do this. And uh, the director of my dissertation, uh, you know, I wrote my dissertation on uh, manifestations of transcendence in 20th century American literature. So it was all about this tension, um, you know, what Taylor calls the cross pressure between uh, longing for the transcendent and living life within the imminent frame. And so you know, over two years at Baylor, I was reading Taylor and uh, both A Secular Age and uh, Sources of the Self, which is also fantastic. And um, applying that specifically to literature. And uh, at the same time, I was writing for the website that I co-founded and helped edit uh, called Christ and Pop Culture. And I was thinking about... um, so I was thinking about one of my heroes, uh, Francis Schaeffer, and mm-hmm. um, and the way that he brought in people when he wanted to evangelize, you know, in the '60s and '70s, people would come and see him with questions. They would ask these big, big questions. You know, they Buddhists and Hindu and 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 uh, nominal Christians and atheists and hippies would come, and they would want to sit around and have these conversations about big life questions: what's the meaning of life, and so on and so forth, and so at the time, this is after I'd read Taylor, I was just thinking, that doesn't feel like my world. Like, I just don't feel like I know of anyone where that's an experience where people are coming to them with these big life questions. It just doesn't seem like people ask questions as much as they did during that time of revolution in the 60s and 70s. And so that got me wondering, how have things changed? Uh, why have they changed? And uh, Taylor provided an part of an answer for that in his understanding of, of secularism, I think. Yeah. And you, you, you mentioned a couple of uh, phrases that um, uh, are really important to get, especially if we're going to talk about um, transcendence or the longing for, and then the imminent frame. And, um, you know, my experience is, is that, um, and some of the reading I've done and picked up, you know, post-seminary and then uh, talking to a lot of young guys working on their PhDs and some of the things they recommend, you know, um, it seems that um, you've, you've done a good job of helping us understand at least what Taylor saw in the, di- the, um, uh, the morphing of what we consider transcendent. Is that, mm-hmm. is that a fair way to, to describe that? So that yeah. if we grew up in church and we think about transcendent, we're obviously thinking about a transcendent other, um, uh, ultimate being, if you will, uh, God, the divine. And yet um, in the last number of decades, that uh, transcendence has really been uh, relocated in what he calls the eminent frame, right? If I'm understanding correctly, 
Mm-hmm. So what's a what's a what's an illustration that you can give from literature where where we might we might someone who say likes to likes to and does read say some uh, popular or common novels or real familiar novels or what stories the kind of illustrate that so that someone who's trying to go hey what you're talking about transcendence and eminence and I'm not sure I get that is is there something you could point to rather easily. Sure. So the example I like to give and um, discuss for quite a while in my in my dissertation is The Great Gatsby. I think it's a great, great touchstone because, first of all, it's just, you know, incredibly popular American novel. Um, so in it, Jay Gatsby desires uh, Daisy Buchanan, um, this woman who he longed for in his youth and never really was able to attain. And then he meets back up with her after he's become this, you know, famous, um, wealthy um, man who throws these lavish parties. But that entire time of longing, she takes on what um, Ernst Becker calls a the kind of the weight of godhood mm. um she she's no longer just a woman that he desires that he um feels like he's in love with that he must be with she really is the transcendent for him mm-hmm. in his thinking if if he can just be with her if she can just kiss him and tell him that she loves him then his existence in the world matters that he's justified his life is worth living he is somebody And um, so here you have an example of a longing for the transcendent that is entirely within what Taylor calls the eminent frame, which is the material world. She's not actually transcendent. Um, Other other thinkers call this um, uh, Marxist uh, theologian Ernest uh, Ernest Bloch calls it uh, uh, transcendence without transcendence um, or an eminent transcendence where you're actually you have the shape or the uh, form of transcendence, but it's entirely in this world. And the key quality of that transcendence without transcendence is when you actually get the thing that you're searching for, that you've put this weight of godhood upon, it always lets you down in an epic way. And so in the case of the great Gatsby, it literally kills Jay Gatsby. Um, mm. when, you know, when he finally attains her, um, it's this tremendous letdown. And that can be true, you know, that's true in literature. And the funny thing about this is that story of seeing someone and longing for them and putting your hope of your existence in them, that story's been told over and over and over again since The Great Gatsby. Yes. And yet we still haven't learned the lesson. I mean, so my students, even myself in my youth, you know, I felt like if I could just have this one girlfriend, then right, I, right. I matter and I'm important, um, which is nonsense. It's a, it's a lie. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I've heard um, that description uh, from a, um, oh, um, well, it's not important where he gets all of it from, I don't think, at least at this moment. But he, he, he kind of describes the same thing as, as kind of a hyper-eminence, that, that um, uh, it's an emphasis that if you understand how present someone is, that becomes transcendent. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the problem with that is, uh, as you point out, um, that it, it, it then requires 
our ability to explain everything in the imminent frame. Right. As if, as if there is an, an, an answer to every human question, every human dilemma, um, every existential experience we have, there, there's a, a simple explanation because we're advanced enough that we know that. And, and I'm wondering that if, if this isn't maybe the, the place where your call back to Francis Schaeffer and being asked big questions isn't, isn't important, is important in the way that uh, for churches, for pastors, for Christians who um, have been uh, really kind of uh, characteristically debating or providing answers basically by referencing, well, this is my worldview and that's your worldview. Right. Um, how, how, let's see, how do I, how, how would we um, create a, a less caricatured um, response to all of that? If, if that, if that's sure. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the way that I had been taught uh, evangelism and, and the way that, and I still think it has tremendous value, a, a sort of presuppositionalist apologetic, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the way that would work would be something like this. So I meet someone, let's say a student, maybe at OBU, who's not a Christian or is nominal faith. And uh, I start talking to him about his faith and, um, you know, basically discovery doesn't really have any, he's really living within, as you said, the imminent frame, which can't really explain all of our desires, our longings, our hopes, our beliefs, all these things. And so, uh, you know, with presuppositionalism, I would try to tease out those contradictions. I would try to show him how his worldview doesn't account for all the things that he seems to believe. But I think, and this is part of what I was trying to get at in the book, I think the problem with that approach today is um, if, if I help that student realize that his worldview is incoherent, um, that he doesn't have answers for why he desires to have existential justification, why can't he just be content to just live? Um, my fear is that it is very easy for that person to shrug off that incoherence and just move on to something else. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it'd be sort of because we're overwhelmed with information and overwhelmed mm-hmm. with options. And what we kind of do as modern people is we just assume there are some answers out there and there's always, there must be some atheist who has figured all these things out. So I don't need to figure it out myself. I could just right. move on with my life. Right. I mean, it's sort of the same thing where like when, when you're about to get on an airplane and you realize I have no idea how this thing works and how I'm going to be able to stay in the air, <laughs> right. but you say, I don't need to think about this because somebody else did. And uh, it's, it just doesn't matter. There's so many other things for me to do with my life. I'm just going to move on. And so that's the problem. Now to, to answer your question, now I've just set up the, the problem to answer right. it. What I would say is I want to build a relationship with that student to where when I talk to him about, for example, his desire for existential justification, which maybe he comes to me and he talks about personal heartbreak, Mm -hmm. you know, just like Jay Gatsby falling in love with a girl and having his heart broken or, or being with her and then still feeling empty and lonely and hopeless inside, leaning into those feelings not an, not using his suffering as a as a prop for evangelism, but for recognizing them 
as what they really are, which is uh, experiences that point to a greater truth about reality, that we were made to love a transcendent God, and that uh, our longing for human companionship is good, but it can be disordered when we replace uh, God with with a spouse. Um, And so I think, you know, people need to feel this deeply. Um, I think if we try to approach it rationally and say, well, and, 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 and talk them through why something is incoherent in the worldview, I think it's too easy to say, for that person to say, this is, uh, you know, a rationalist debate. I can just shrug this off. But when they feel it in their gut, um, that I think can be, you know, basically what the book called the disruptive witness. Yeah, a couple of things that come to mind. Um, uh, you know, you know, one is is that another response to viewing this as just a rational uh, conversation is that um, while you and I uh, could describe our understanding of the transcendent uh, in what we would certainly feel are coherent ways. Uh, doesn't necessarily always cohere to everyone else's understanding of reality. Mm-hmm. So if you're not very good at presuppositionalism, uh, Van Til or the such, then then you probably are 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 going to lose if if winning is what you're aiming for. But if you're right. but the emphasis you placed on the conversation was I want to build a relationship, be fully aware of those um, experiences that the other is having that um, point to uh, something transcendent, whether it's beauty, truth, uh, the good, uh, love, those become, those become the things that, you know, are not so easily dismissed unless we consider one of the other phrases or other terms that uh, you draw out for us. Um, And we just have, become thoroughly withdrawn into our buffered selves. Um, And I think in the church sometimes, I find that both Christians and those who are curious um, have found what's described as the buffered self as that safety uh, uh, um, from being disrupted. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's it is it is safe and and it's interesting because I um, it can happen in church services, right? So somebody goes to your church and uh, um, and this is why I spent quite a bit of time talking about services because I feel like sometimes our services sort of cater to that buffered self. Um, Taylor, I mean Taylor calls this excarnation. Yes, yeah. yes. excarnation is when when we're instead of being incarnated fully in our bodies we're actually being basically shoved to our heads. Our head, our mind, our rational thinking is where the reality is and everything else is just sort of superfluous. Um, And, you know, one of the dangers of this sort of rationalist approach is that you just step back and uh, evaluate everything. Um, And so you decide what you want to let in. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I I think this is a, a major problem in the church, we're all sort of walking around as disaffected, uh, you know, rational heads and vats. And um, 
So the matrix and, is matrix is true. <laughs> yeah, right. And we don't even need to be plugged in. I mean, we're that's right. That's right. Yeah, we're plugging in ourselves every day. Yeah, I mean, there's a, I mean, there's a, a bit of a bit of truth to that. Um, yeah. Except, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, one thing that came to mind is is when when you were kind of calling attention to um, your section, your 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 chapter where um, you kind of uh, have a little bit of dialogue with James K. Smith. Um, yeah. And, you know, some may be familiar with his radical orthodoxy, but uh, a, a very intentional thinking through how what happens in a worship service both, you know, includes the body, um, opens us up for formation, and presents a challenge, you know, to the buffered self, but also and and this is a this is another phrase so that I'm, I'm trying to build these up so the reader can just you know I got to get this book and find out more about what this is about. <laughs> um, but but there was another uh, you know flowing out of that. So uh, you you describe the fact that we're all pushed into our heads, and oh. it, and it's at that point that we then begin to decide we get to determine um, who we are as individuals, neglecting who we are as persons. If I read what you yeah. were saying correctly. And yeah. so that's why we have a preponderance of I think it's it's um, expressive individualism. Yeah. Is that is that Absolutely is that is that right. yeah. so? Talk about how talk about the things you see. How what does that look like? Because we've you know we've we've stacked phrases that are common to um, uh, Taylor's work. You've drawn them out, and I just didn't want to give away the whole book. Uh, but yeah. but there you've got great <laughs> illustrations for all of these. Very, very, uh, for me, reading page after page was, I kept going, yes, yes, and, and a number of ahas along the way. But, but it's this, it's this, um, it, it's something that's not in the debate about um, the distinction between individuals and persons. And and so if you tease out expressive individualism and then you lay it against the, the cultural soup, which I, I think is a reference you made that is very thin, which I, I love that yeah. phrase anyway, it is is we're actually in our heads playing to this very thin expressive individualism that completely denies us personhood. Absolutely. Yeah. This is I mean, this is one of in, in my mind, expressive individualism is one of the, the most serious threats to the church yes. in Western developed countries um, right now. And, and it is so dangerous because it can very easily undermine our faith and it is insidious. So insidious specifically means it's not only nefarious, but it's sneaky, right? That's what right. insidious means. Right. Like I always picture a snake sneaking up and that's mm -hmm. what expressive individualism is. It's, it's just how we've been taught, and and part of this, and and I, and I'm speaking as someone who is a capitalist, but but part of this is consumer capitalism. Sure, we are, sure. Uh, we are trained to think that we are um, unique individuals who only who's only uh, who only become important or significant when we express our individuality. Right. Yes. I mean, you can, and as soon as I say that, I'm sure there's like a million ad campaigns. Yes. Throughout your life, you can just think about expressing yourself and just how important that is in our culture. And um, this has infected the church, too. I, I worry about, um, you know, students or, you know, just Christians who have been raised 
and they think of their faith unknowingly. They think of their faith as, um, you know, as part of what they're expressing, as part of their identity. You know, they're, I, I, you know, I'm a, you know, whether it's denomination or just Christianity in general, and um, ultimately they they see their individualism at the, is the essential thing, and the uh, and then they're adding sort of lifestyle flares on top of it to make mm-hmm. themselves this person, and then they go on and express it. And what one of the things that worries me is when that person comes to is is faced with a serious trial when that person is faced with a situation where um their uh individualism and their uh who they see themselves their identity conflicts with biblical orthodoxy um i fear that they're not going to side with biblical orthodoxy because that that is going to be something added on to their individualism um so um and it's a trap it's such a trap yeah. it eats your soul i mean yeah. i see it with so many people um because the so the, the premise behind expressive individualism if it wasn't already clear is that um you be your your existence is justified your life matters if you have an identity and you uh you look inside yourself for that identity and either you're going to create it or you're going to discover it inside yourself. And then you have to be authentic to that self. And you do that by expressing it primarily. And so that's why we have, I mean, basically, every, we can't do anything in the modern world without uh, signaling it to and displaying it for a million people to see, because that's how we justify ourselves. But, you, you know, part of the trap is it's never enough. I mean, sure. there are at, sure. at every layer of that situ of, of that I concept, you're not satisfied. If you look inside yourself, it's not it, it's never clear who you are. You're constantly changing, and so you always mm-hmm. feel like I've got to keep looking for the real me. Am I being authentic to the real me? Is this the real me, or am I being programmed by society? And then once you start expressing it, you it, you can never express it enough, and so there you're just like on this mouse wheel and running yourself ragged Mm -hmm. and um that's sort of the modern condition yeah you know um i've got another another friend that that, that came to mind that that um that this might also fit because with the influence of looking inside yourself and and you know quote whatever it is discovering and then you find out you change the, the one thing that tends to happen um well, sometimes with all of us maybe is that I think back to, so I think back to some theological commitments I had um, in, in uh, junior high mm-hmm. and <clears throat> I had, a, I had my first naivete, if you will. And, yeah. and then you go to college and to seminary, you pastor for a while and you're going like, you know, those theological commitments have changed because mm. not because I view them as wrong, but I've matured. I, there, there are some other factors that I need to take to account. It's not that one was uh, more orthodox than another. It's that I've changed in how I see these things, hopefully maturing along the way. And I have a choice. I can embrace the fact that I saw things this way then, and right. now I've, I've grown or I've moved, 
But so often with expressive individualism, I have to have a disavowal. I have to disavow that former person, which to me does some serious damage to the psyche because now you talk about buffered or repressed. I start to buffer myself by denying the fact that 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 was ever me. And so I have to, so now I'm dealing with all sorts of internal anxieties and antagonisms I'm completely unfamiliar with because I have to deny because my new set of friends would not know what to do if at one time I let, I let them know I was over here. Yeah, absolutely. And so it reminded me of Tim Keller um, who years ago described what he thought was the most powerful knowledge at the time. And he may still feel this way but was a social knowledge that if, if, you, if you find a new in-group of which you want to be a part, then what you will do is you'll modify everything you um, believe, see, practice, participate in, because the drive to be identified in that group means that I, all these things are up for grabs and I'll change all of these positions. Right. And, and, and kind of back to your point about, you know, um, uh, seeing my identity, whether it's denominationally or, or even as a Christian or a particular kind of Christian, adjectivally speaking, then um, I, I can easily let it go because it's, it's interfering with my identity. And uh, wow, that, that just, I obviously am a bit of a verbal processor. So to get to no, talk to good. someone through these kinds of things, <laughs> it's like, oh, that's just, this, this makes what you've put together even, to me, more powerful it, that um, when we're hunting around trying to figure out, you know, what's going on and how can we pastorally um, uh, think through these issues as well as how, how can we, you know, what, do, what shape do sermons take? What, what's the content look like? What's the, what's the form? And, and uh, so this is really, really an important work, I think, uh, uh, at least for pastors that I you know, that I know and, and uh, don't want to denigrate them by saying they don't think. I just don't know that this is something that, you know, unless they're prodded, they might not pick up the book. Just, I mean, even, even though it's got one of the coolest covers ever, you know, I don't, I don't know that, I don't know that everybody will, you know, will pick it up. You, you make a comment, um, uh, you know, when you're kind of concluding and, 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 and kind of drawing things together that I think on its face, um, would be a bit disruptive. Um, so we've, we've read through, uh, you know, you've, you've taken us through in, in, a, in a very helpful way uh, what you've gleaned from Taylor's works. And then you say the, sec- the secularization project didn't work. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and not to give all of that away because Again, we want people to buy it and read it for themselves. But the intrigue there is is that it's followed by the fact that, um, you know, I remember your, I remember uh, the uh, sermon illustration book that that uh, gave a Voltaire quote: uh, uh, "There won't be uh, a Bible in a hundred years, save as an antiquarian curiosity." And of course, he was wrong. He was wrong about yeah. that. But um, this this whole this whole process, this whole experience of secularization, um, the experts did did say that, well, since we can't explain everything, there's only an imminent frame. Uh, transcendence can be satisfied as you see the beauty in the other. Just ignore the fact that that beauty is going to die. Right. Um, and, 
And yet um, there is clear evidence that um, uh, faith isn't dead, that, right. that, that Christianity is not dead. The church isn't dead. And I, interestingly, you point out even in the West, even though you make reference to the Southern hemisphere and other parts of the world, but, but you, you keyed in to say that this is, this is, it's not going away here. People are yeah. still coming to church, right? Still expressing faith, still participating in, you know, what we would say is kingdom work. Yeah. And so the idea that, that, uh, um, we would no longer need that, um, you have more to say about that? You tease that out somewhere? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that just to, to clarify for any listeners who might not know. So the secularization hypothesis was this widely, basically almost all, as I understand it, sociologists accepted in the, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s that, you know, by 1990 or certainly the year 2000 in industrialized uh, countries people of faith would be a, a serious minority, you know, you know, 99% or 95% of people would, would be atheists. Um, because as you said, they're just, science seems to explain things. We don't need it. We have all these other things to give us meaning and purpose and value and direction in life. So uh, people are just going to lose faith. And, you know, by the 90s, sociologists were looking around and realizing, well, we, we missed the boat on that one. Something Happen now. You still see a lot of uh, a lot of that process in Western Europe. Um, it's not quite what people expected there, as I understand it. But in America, it's you know, faith is alive and well. I don't know if I'd say well, but I mean, right. you know, statistically, there are, you know there are a lot of people who who have faith. And and it's interesting if you look at the as I understand it, if you look at the studies of the of the nuns, uh, not. N-U-N, but the, you know, people right. with no right. religious right. affiliation, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um, as I understand it, a lot of those people actually claim to be spiritual still. So they'll, they'll claim yes. a belief in God, but they just don't, they're just not picking denominations. So those aren't a- atheists per se. Right. Um, and I'm not sure what's going to happen. So, so what Taylor does is he says, um, that was... And the old understanding of, of secularism, which is that secularism is what he called a, a subtraction myth. Mm-hmm, so right. you're going to delete faith and then you're going to get to sort of raw basic humanity, human right. existence, human civilization. And he says that's nonsense. It's just going to shift around and you're going to have something more like pluralism. Right. And so what I don't know is going to happen. And and I and I think the next few years, certainly, I think our current political climate has sort of uh, accelerated this. Um, I think we might see a winnowing effect. As I said, mm. you know, people who are Christian but are sort of really expressive individualists, um, when let's say. Um, their belief, in, let's say, you know, uh, biblical, uh, you know, traditional biblical sexual ethics becomes very socially um, unpopular and costly. I'm just not sure that they're going to have, um, I'm, not sure, I'm just not convinced that, that you know, a, a faith built on um, 
Christianity as a lifestyle option. I just, right. the, there's just not the incentive to put up with social costs when right. the social costs are high and why do it? And right now, even though, you know, okay, so we've got a couple of bakers and the stories of florists and, mm-hmm. you know, wedding mm-hmm. photographers. Okay. And those are legit things. Sure. But for most people, especially if you're in the Bible belt, the Midwest, the South, good, good heavens. There's tons of social benefits to being in a church. Yes. And so right now for most people, it's just really not costly. Right. But I but I do think when you have rising social costs, which I think we're going to see, and then I think also you're going to have people who who've been trained even in the church to look inward to see what's you know true, uh, who their their identity is, and then if you know their brother, their sister, themselves, their you know their neighbor comes to them and says, "Well, I've looked inside myself, and my identity is this kind of a person." Mm-hmm. Um, and now they have to ask, well, if, if that kind of lifestyle is opposed to Christian teaching, but you looked inside yourself right. and there's this conflict, right? So what's, what's true? Is Christian orthodoxy true or is this, you know, sort of individualism? And I think a lot of people are going to side with individualism. So mm. I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what the next few years mm or going to, um, to look like. I, I do know that we have uh, vibrant churches still, and uh, we're not Europe, um, but I do think that churches need to, uh, um, to shore up the ruins, is what I would say. Yeah, I think that there, there's one, and, and I, this isn't um, in any way a criticism, because um, I think in some respects you 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 weave this into uh, the book, but there's one thing that was pretty fascinating to me um, when I was starting and uh, charting my way. Well, my limited way through uh, Taylor is, is that one of the effects of uh, the imminent frame, the buffered self and expressive individualism is it, it's really easy to disenchant the world. Yes. And so when he starts down that, I start thinking about, you know, periods in my own life where grappling with um, maybe a move to, um, I'm going to stay with, uh, you know, of course, second naivete, if you will, where you're like, oh, this is, this has become exciting again. I can see that uh, aside from that, someone could really get really, you know, uh, I think you said, you know, some of this is going to be mundane, and because expressive individualism, you know, um, tends to uh, be um, euphoric for us because it energizes us, mm-hmm. it, display, it, 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 it replaces the lack of enchantment, which, if I read Taylor Wright, is actually the echoes of transcendence. Mm-hmm. That, that enchantment is, is that, wow, this world is something else, uh, something beyond explanation, you know, uh, uh, the fearfully and wonderfully made body that now we know everything yeah. about, but we really don't know everything <laughs> about, you know what I mean? So, yeah. so I'm, I'm wondering a little bit if, if, um, you know, not to think that one of the uh, segments of the church that, that really seems to have some vim and vigor uh, is, um kind of the more expressive denominations uh, and it, and that happens in the south and i'm, I'm wondering 
speculatively, of course, is do you yeah. think that the presence of that particular enchantment is still is, is still um, um, because it's still a part of faith? We see a lot more energy than you know maybe we do um, at a typical Baptist Sunday morning you know event where you know you've brought your buffered selves with you and you just hope that the pastor doesn't help strip away your um, uh, expressive individualism to penetrate <laughs> down to where you have to think about yourself enough. And if he disrupts you that much, then you're going to leave and find another church where you can That's just right. kind of continue to choose Christianity as your own lifestyle. Yeah. But I'm just, I'm just wondering if the, if, if there isn't something to, um, you know, then I start thinking about the scriptures and I, and I think, you know, the, the reference to, as a child, come as a child, you know, suffer the children. And, and, and there is a naivete about, about, uh, about children that, mm-hmm. that they're, they're, they're open to exploring. Uh, everything's open. It's not closed. And, right. and, and I just wonder if, if, if there isn't something um, to the fact that more expressive uh, forms of, of the faith m- might be, um, remnants of a, a, a of a view of an enchanted world. Yeah, so you're thinking like Pentecostal churches. Yeah, Pentecostals which are growing yeah. rapidly, especially yeah. in the global South, and, yes. and even in the United States, they're you know yes. one of the stronger yes. numbers wise. Yeah. So, and I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, not not enough. I shouldn't say a lot. I thought I've thought about this a bit, and and I'm not sure exactly what to do. With that, and and part of that is that, um, you know, we've been talking in very broad terms about broad movements, and there are lots of exceptions. And I think that if you were to go to a Pentecostal church and you were able to sort of evaluate each individual's experience, then then you would get a wide spectrum of Mm -hmm. people. And my guess is that you would find this: you would find that some people. Um, understand their faith and understand the world as a still enchanted world. Mm-hmm. Um, so they believe that uh, if they get sick, it might be because they're in sin. And uh, they oh, believe that, you know, um, in fact, I got told this uh, one time I went to a youth pastor. I was a teenager and I was depressed because I was a teenager. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I went to this, I went to my youth pastor and I told him, I was like, I don't, I just, I'm just depressed like all the time. And he's like, well, what kind of music are you listening to? And I was like, well, you know, alternative, it was the nineties. And he was like, right. Oh, well there might, you know, our pastor studied demonology. I think there might be demons attached to that music. So oh. here are some Christian music CDs to oh. listen to. And the Christian music CDs made me more depressed because they weren't yeah. very good. Right. So, <laughs> boom, there you go. No there demons you. attached to them, but they were just not very good. Um, That's awesome. But there is, so I think you would find some people who who see the world as still enchanted. They don't, and, and at least in some some significant ways, they really live knowing that they're not in a closed, imminent frame. So, but I think you would find some others. I think this is a very real thing who see their faith and their sort of um, supernatural faith as something like a novelty, something like an entertainment, something uh, strange that's exciting and interesting, but it's still kind of, they're, they're, I think in a way they're still very aware that their belief is um, 
strange. And, and, I, and I would equate that group, and I don't know what percentage it might be, but I'm confident that this describes some people. I would equate that group to, you know, people who believe in, in ghosts and UFOs uh, right, and right, right. Because right. how do you explain them yeah. in, a, yeah. in, a, in a sort of, well, I think it's because there's a, uh, an, an enchant, it's exciting to think about who would have ghosts were real. Right. Um, if, have, did you ever listen to coast to coast AM the oh, famous? I have. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's this, you know, famous AM show where they have, people talking about ghosts and aliens right. and shadow people and all these things. And when you listen to it, you, you wonder like, <laughs> are these people, they don't really think this. Right. And there's this line that's continually blurred on the show between a, like playing a game or irony and sincere belief. And I think that describes a lot of us modern people yeah. that, you know, yeah. when we, you know, we think about these things, it's like, there's something we're thinking about them as an exception, as something fun and interesting and exciting. Um, not as a sincerely held belief in a transcendent source being. Yeah. I, I could see where you could get sidetracked, but do, do you think that, is it, is it that um, Taylor would have, and, and of course I chased this down the, the trail of, uh, of the, the exotic, when it comes to enchantment, mm-hmm. uh, but but if we pulled back a little bit, uh, the, the 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 language of the of the of the reality of God, the presence of God, you know, even Genesis, the Spirit of God hovered over the, over the face of the deep, you know, yeah. this 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 language that draws attention to this reality that's wholly other but wholly present. Yeah. I, I'm thinking kind of in in that vein. Um, and so it was my, uh, my pitch, I, I, I threw the wrong pitch. Um, yeah. but I, I think I'm wondering if, if that isn't, um, if, if there's a way to kind of uh, experience a, a second coming of that, if you will, or again, a second naivete where you, you, you're open to that and, and how you'd foster that particular, um, uh, interest, uh, be, because I, I think that, I think that when I see some young people who have, um, uh, you know, grown up with uh, particular Bible stories only Uh to later read the full story Uh and go, I think that's about something different. Uh And then they're affirmed, not that they've come up with some off-brand interpretation, but they've taken the entire story to account and they get a little bit more excited about it. And that kind of re-enchants a story that, oh, so there's more going on to Jonah and a whale, you know, yeah. uh, and I'm living in a world where um, nationalism is on full display. And it seems that there's a critique going on of, of, of hyper-nationalism in, yeah. in the story of Jonah. And it's mm-hmm. like, wow, this is speaking to me. So there's, so, you know, even, even, um, even the text becomes uh you know enchanting again and yeah. and that's where i'm i'm wondering you know i've been thinking about how do you foster you know how do you foster that because you know you yeah. you you could just stand up and say you know everything you've read you know you read it all wrong that just doesn't play very well um <laughs> and, and and yet and so instead if if you're able to take you know some of those fascinating fantastical even stories and then kind of get to the you know what really is at work here and have we thought that really what's being communicated is that people have always wrestled with this? 
God knows that we've always wrestled with this. It's our turn to wrestle with this. And kind of where would he have us to be faithful in this? That there's kind of a, you know, there's, there's a sense there that that's not closed off. Maybe. Yeah. Or or does orthodoxy close it off? I mean, I guess it depends on how you're interpreting. I mean, (laughs) I mean, orthodoxy (laughs) would close off some things. Yes. The answer to that is it really depends on, you know, the, you know, the interpretation of Jonah you gave is uh, perfectly orthodox. Right. But if you're Yes. Right. You know, other yes. things, yes. Virgin yes. Birth, for example. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, right. Right. And so, and there is, I mean, so, uh, you know, there is a possibility that you, you can turn the word into a playground. This is a, a kind of postmodern mm-hmm. right. move, right? right. Where, where right. it's like you make it interesting and exciting because you can play with the text to discover truths that speak into your present life Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and that would be a danger right so i would say that that's because then what you're actually ending because what will happen is then the congregation realizes i don't really need a bible for that like i can do that with a pop song like exactly this song speaks into my sorrow right now Mm -hmm. that's doing the same thing so uh, there has to be a sense that the word of God is literally the word of God. Mm-hmm. And that is a hard thing to grasp. I think, um, you know, you were talking about, you know, that, that God knows that, that, you know, humans have always wrestled with these questions with these stories, or, you know, at least as long as these stories have been around, I think giving uh, congregants a sense that, that there's a Christian tradition you know, mm-hmm. so that, you know, when applicable, bringing in church fathers right. so that so that people are realizing this isn't just something that has fallen from the sky. Right. This is this has a history to it. It has yep. a weight to it. Yep. There's a solemnity involved in this. Um, I think that can be really I think that can be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, I, I, I do too. Yeah. I mean, you got to, you got to pay attention to the cautions and, and I, and I do, I do think that's a, a, a very real challenge. Um, uh, particularly when, um, you, you tend to be wrestling from time to time with, with folks who, uh, the familiarity has bred some sort of hidden contempt. Right. And, and so, uh, an, a, a, a way to reinvigorate the familiar, um, yeah. may be a better way to describe, yes. you know, an, an aim or a goal. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I think we hit enough, hopefully, that someone's already gotten on Amazon and they've already <laughs> ordered um, or will have once they listen to this. They'll, they'll not wait to the end. They'll, they'll get it on, on order. That'd but, be great. Um, I just want to say appreciate you taking your time and, and um, uh, writing this book. Uh, again, I, I, um, when I, uh, read the first chapter. I, I told uh, I told my brother who who lives in Texas and and has been a pastor before. And and I said the the book's worth the first chapter, so you need to buy it anyway. And, and so <laughs> that was my so, goal. So you know that is really 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 worthwhile. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And what you got anything else in the works? You got anything uh, kind of your future looking uh, to to put together? Uh, I mean, yeah, I don't, I can't give much away right now because I'm still in the sort of pre-proposed book proposal process and that's a long process, but right. I'm, um, 
yeah, excited about the next project and where it's going to focus, I think. And um, I think it's going to be more helpful than than this one uh, for a lot of people. So good. That's all I can say. But yeah, turning a turning a dissertation into a page turner. I mean, that's remarkable. (laughs) Well, yeah, well, I mean, that's remarkable. It was, I mean, it was mostly just taking the, the, some of the research from the dissertation. None of the, the arguments of the dissertation made it, unfortunately. Someday I'd like to do that, but that's, yeah, well, sure. that's a ways off. That's sure. a ways off. Yeah. I need more time. Well, keep up the good work. Thank you, sir. I appreciate and, it. Uh, and again, uh, uh, thanks so much for uh, taking the time out of your Monday. Glad to do it. Hey, as always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope you found that conversation helpful. I do recommend that uh, you pick up a copy of Alan's book, Disruptive Witness. Uh, and it might even uh, create the curiosity for you to pick up uh, Charles Taylor's tome, uh, otherwise known as a doorstop, 800 pages of uh, a little bit more involved uh, work that <clears throat> I think Alan explicated really well in his book. And uh, and so uh, pick it up at your uh, favorite bookseller. If you've got a local shop that carries it, that's great. Otherwise, whatever you got to do, get a copy. Uh, share it with uh, other pastors you know, maybe folks on your staff. Uh, I think they'll benefit uh, greatly from it. We've got some other uh, podcasts in the works. We've been Took about a month or a little more off, and I want to thank you for your patience. And uh, if you found this particular um, podcast helpful, like any of the others, then uh, please share. Uh, Give us a review on iTunes. Uh, It helps folks find us, and uh, maybe we are providing a resource that would be uh, helpful to other pastors and uh, uh, church leaders. So until next time, this has been Todd Littleson with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. Peace.